Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Style Guides podcast. My name is Brad Frost. I'm Anna Debenham. And today we are really, really lucky to have with us Micah Godbolt. Micah, how are you? I am good. I'm ready for this. Let's do it. Yes, excellent. Well, let's just dive right in. I mean, I guess uh, for the uninitiated to the to the Micah Godbolt universe, uh, <laughs> what's your what's your sort of story? Where do you fit in the design system realm of things? Like, what's your role? What are you What are you working on as it pertains to to design systems? Sure. Um, I'm currently a senior design developer at Microsoft, uh, which is basically a front-end developer. They just don't really have that title. Um, <laughs> but but it's, it's pretty apt for what we do. We really do development, and uh, but we do development specifically um, to get our design into our applications. So uh, right now, my major focus is on uh, Fabric React, which is uh, the design system that's used within Office, Office 365, and uh, really a lot of the applications now at Microsoft. It's uh, a design system that started within OneDrive and SharePoint, uh, but has grown and started to become uh, adopted within um, a lot of the Office products uh, and, and actually products across Microsoft in general. So it's really great to be able to write a, a React control that actually gets used by, I, mean, I, I don't know the millions, I mean, it's probably a large number of people. Um, so that's been really exciting. I've been doing that for the last uh, nine months or so and, and diving headfirst into React and TypeScript, uh, which for me was actually a first for both of those. Uh, prior to that, uh, I was doing um, a lot of design system work at Red Hat, building out a large system for them, um, writing uh, writing a book on design systems called Frontend Architecture for Design Systems on O'Reilly Press, um, doing podcasts, doing speaking, doing uh, Lean and Meetup for a couple of years, just getting really, really busy. Uh, so right now it's kind of nice just to sit down and, and focus and be able to do, uh, do this project that, at Microsoft that I'm doing. That's great. So, so it sounds like you know nothing about design systems. That's great. Nothing at all. I have zero experience, and I shouldn't be here. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Um, no, that's a, that's fantastic. I mean, uh, in your book is is quite wonderful. So, I definitely encourage everyone to to pick that up. Um, so yeah. So so I think a big thing of as we're diving into this, as we're sort of dusting off this podcast, is really sort of seeing how the the landscape over the last couple of years, as it relates to to design systems and stuff, has really uh, is evolved. I think uh, you know we all understand. Okay, this makes sense. It makes sense to sort of set aside these best practices. It's, it makes sense to try to, you know architect things in a way that you're not constantly reinventing the wheel or that this product would be able to benefit from the thinking of, of stuff that was born of another product. So, and, and also get a sense of like, sort of how sort of that actually happens. Like, what does that look like? What tools, what technologies, uh, you know, we reach for in order to, to make that stuff happen. And I, and I know that at Microsoft, you seem to be doing a lot about, a lot of work within React, this Fabric React. So, do you want to talk about sort of React as in general, but also sort of specific what sort of Fabric React is and how that's helping, and, and sort of how you're architecting things in a way that that allows you to make things at scale? Sure. Um, kind of going going back to what you're originally talking about, how um, 
uh, we've come a, come a long way in the last three years, going from you know what what even is a design system and why would we ever need one? Um, and I think a lot of us are kind of at this like uh, version two of our, our design system thinking. Um, mm-hmm. It's three three years ago when I sat down with with Red Hat. We just launched our site. Um, and we were looking to try and um, kind of bolster the design system of it and try and create something more reusable. Uh, I was starting to prototype the ideas and getting a few things together. And uh, one of the managers I was working with um, asked me, it was like, so uh, you know, how many times have you done this? Like, you know, how many of these have you built? And, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people would have the same response of, uh, yeah, this is the first time I've ever done this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, you know, what, websites, especially when you're working on a large-scale website, usually do, you know, one a year-ish kind of thing. You don't, sure. you don't really get a chance to do lots of websites over and over again. So, yeah, that was the first time I'd, I'd gotten to even try and build one. Um, so, yeah, this is this is V2. This is my, like, my, my second opportunity to take what I've learned and start building things. Um, and... I think there's a couple things that come to mind with that respect. Um, one of them is the, the, it's kind of going back to that million dollar button thing. I, I'm trying to remember where I heard it, but somebody had wrote a, a, written an article or a talk or something about like the million dollar button or the $5 million button or whatever the case is. Um, I think that's uh, Jared Spool. Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay. Nice. Um, I need to track that down again. Um, but it's as soon as I saw that, I was like, "What?" And then within nine months of working on this project, the amount of work I have put into our button and the amount of times <laughs> it has been refactored, the amount of times it's been updated with new technologies and so on and so forth. Um, but I think that the power is that as we keep doing more work and more work and more work, we keep coming down to this realization that so many things in our design system are buttons are literally mm. buttons. Like if you look at a drop-down menu and all the items in a drop-down menu, mm-hmm. those are buttons. Those might be buttons like displayed in different ways and you know with different styles and functionality wrapped around it. But in the end, they need all that core functionality that any button could need. So we're kind of getting to this point where like we're almost looking at anything you could click on really needs to be like go down to that button. Like no one should be writing an anchor tag or a button tag or anything uh, that's not just using the button component itself. So mm-hmm. that whole concept of you know how how could you spend that much time and effort on a button? It's because well everything you click on is literally a button, and there's there's no reason to to use something different because eventually you're going to come to a point where you're like oh I wish our you know the our our other button that we made over here had the functionality that our, our normal button has. Like, why can't we add an icon on the left-hand side? Why can't we have a drop-down menu on the right-hand side? Why can't we do this, do this, do this, like our other button does? Uh, and, and you realize that if everything can, if every clickable object can um, basically be um, a descendant or, or a parent, whatever way you want to go, of that actual button, um, it means that everything has a ton of power and flexibility to it. Um, and then kind of going from there, um, uh, as we start building more things and, and as, this, as this button becomes more powerful, uh, we've, we've just started introducing, uh, we're using Glamour for, um, uh, for our stylings. Uh, and it's, it's a hot topic right now of moving CSS into JavaScript. Um, and the main reason that we've done it is that um, uh, typically, if you if you have a button that you want to have um, 
say you want it three different colors. You know, you want a, a red, a green, and a black, or something like that. Um, yep. You need to enumerate those in, in your CSS, and uh, you know, attach a class to it, or whatever you're going to use for that. Um, and and so then you 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 say, oh, oh, it's green one, and you pass the green class through. On the blue one, pass the blue class through. Now, if you want a purple button, you have to go in the CSS. You need to add purple button and make that a class name, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth down down the uh, down the list. As you need more of these colors, how do you support those without going in the CSS and and doing that? Or someone has to write CSS that overrides those styles. Um, so I mean, this is obviously this is a big problem when you've got a button that needs to be used just about anywhere. Like, hey, I want to use a button in this instance, but the styles don't match, or the, the padding's not correct, or whatever the case is, now I need to write some styles to override it. Um, and what what Glamour allows you to do is, is basically make, you're still, in the end, you still have a style tag with a selector and some CSS attributes. Um, you know, properties and attributes. But the way that tag is created is actually at runtime for us now. So every time a button is created, we, we pass in all the properties of like, I want the color on hover to be green. And you can actually pass that through as a property. So when that button gets rendered, it now has the hover color of green. Not as some override of like, you know, more specific selector, not as a like, oh, now we have different variants in our CSS and we're using the green hover variant. Um, these are values that can be mixed down into the button every time you use it. And this is hugely powerful because uh, so I'm building this new command bar. Um, we basically, we had a command bar that used to just be this, this monolithic, like everything in the kitchen sink, all the functionality built into it. Um, and now I'm breaking it down into like all these tiny little pieces. Um, and one of those is obviously a button because it's just, you know, it's a bunch of buttons with some overflow menus and those kind of things. Um, and now in this, in the contract and the API I have for this command bar, I can literally say that like for every item you have on your command bar, you can pass in a set of styles. You can pass in a set of, you know, icon colors and background colors and hover colors and all these things that now get mixed down into that button all the way down at the bottom of that stack. So that you can have like, oh, I need my icon to be, you know, the first one green, the second one red and the third one purple. And you can mm. do all of that without a single CSS selector, without having to worry about specificity, without worrying about you know adding extra bloat to the CSS or any of that. Um, and that's really an amazing place to be. We're able to now start leveraging the, the flexibility and the power of these, of these really focused and really um, capable components as you start building larger things with them. And, and seeing that, that level of flexibility um, uh, has been really amazing because we're trying to build one <clears throat> one command bar that can be used in Microsoft Word, that can be used in Outlook, that can be used in OneDrive and SharePoint, that can be used anywhere. Um, and we don't want to have to you know, add all these, well, here's the OneDrive version, and you can pass in a class for that. And here's the SharePoint version, you can do a class for that. We're trying to make something that's powerful enough that um, you can pass in whatever you need uh, for a set, you know, for whatever stylings, or you can, you know, override the button and use a different render function for that. Uh, it's just, it's really kind of neat that um, it, it's kind of moving on to design systems as a set of styles, but also design system as a set of functionality. Because um, when it comes down to it, Fabric has, you know, has styles and it has kind of like, this is our visual language that we use within our product. Um, but we try and make that visual language something that 
doesn't get in the way if you need it to look completely different. Um, and that's, I think maybe that's the style or the um, design system 2.0 as you start you know, wrapping that functionality around all these components as well, uh, right. making them really capable. Mm. Yeah, so... CSS and JavaScript still feels mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> it, it's it's kind of crazy, and I completely agree. And <laughs> hopefully, we'll get to a point where we don't need to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the the best thing would be if we could actually like compile SAS like on the fly and pass the you know the the variables in you know to that SAS file before it gets rendered. That's basically what we're looking to do. But but right now, um, the way that works is in the build step. Uh, that SAS file, like before, without without um, CSS and JavaScript, uh, the SAS file actually gets converted into CSS and then stored as a string that then eventually gets passed to the component. Um, right. So right now, you know, it's we that's all happening on um, uh, on compile on uh, on build time rather than at runtime. So um, as you know, as long as soon as we're able to at runtime make those changes, uh, it's going to be a whole lot easier, whether that's, you know, a better support with CSS variables or, you know, um, gosh, just being able to compile SAS in the browser. I don't know what it's going to take. But yeah. I think the point and the value of what we're doing is showing this is what we want to do. You know, we will we want to be able to say, hey, render this button, but here's the, here's the values that we want to go into that CSS. Um, it, we want to do that, and we found a solution for it. It takes JavaScript, and hopefully, eventually, we won't have to do that, and it'll be something that uh, will be supported within better tooling, within better browser support, within better something. But we're we're, yeah. we're blazing the trails as to where we want to get. Hopefully, a road will come after us. I feel yeah. a bit like um, I, I don't know if either of you watched Father Ted. Um, guessing not. No, sorry. Uh, I, I feel like uh, so Mrs. Doyle she she loves making tea for um, people she works for and uh, she's she's shown this machine that makes tea and she's just looking really skeptical through the whole demonstration of like this machine just making tea and the, the person who's trying to sell it to her is saying you know it's going to take all the misery out of making tea and she just goes maybe I like the misery <laughs> I think that's me I think that's me with CSS you know I love writing CSS and I don't want to well, take that away from me that's I so the, I mean the thing about it is you're, you're not you're not not writing CSS the the end product is still CSS we're not talking about inline styles we're not talking about you know not creating CSS properties and, and solving things with CSS um, it, it really comes down to how does CSS get into the browser um, and what what processes can you affect on it before it gets in the browser uh, I mean so when you start looking at um, uh, at CSS and JavaScript, you're basically looking like a big JSON object that pretty much looks like CSS, except you're using commas instead of semicolons, and you've got um, uh, you know um, quotes around your your values. I mean, otherwise it looks like CSS. You've got background color is whatever your background color, and you have font size is whatever your font size is. So right. you're still doing all these things. It's just where do they get where do they get stored? Um, and right now we're doing it in JavaScript because we want to be able to, at, at runtime, when or at, yeah, runtime, um, be able to process that JavaScript and do things to the JavaScript before it actually prints to the page. Uh, and that's that's for us the 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 power of it. Um, you know, beyond that, you're still creating CSS on you know in the browser, and the CSS has to work like CSS does. So. Um, 
I don't think we're yeah. taking away the pain of CSS. Um, you know, if you like the pain, it's still there. <laughs> I do uh, like the pain. <laughs> <laughs> but we're just, we're changing the place that you write it. Um, and in a way, at least at this point, we are, like, we're replacing, you know, SAS variables with JavaScript variables. And we're replacing, you know, SAS mixins with a JavaScript function. Um, right. So, I mean, we're, it's really the same kind of building process for your styles. It's just in a different language. Uh, but, yeah. but the end result is still the same. So, so... Here's a question for you, and this is something that I run into with my own sort of uh, client work and stuff. Wherever I go into these organizations and, you know, this particular product or this particular slice of a product is is running React and they're, you know, talking about all this cool stuff that, that you're talking about. They, you know, they're excited about maybe or maybe not writing the, the CSS and the JavaScript or whatever. But the, the basic gist is, is to your earlier point of, you know, we're sort of not just saying like, oh, hey, here's what a button looks like. It, we're we're like quite literally sort of standardizing a lot of the the functionality of this stuff, right? So that you know, people don't have to each individual engineer or whatever that's reaching for that button has to rewrite all of this you know behavioral stuff or whatever. So so I get that that that's really attractive to sort of build that in. What about and. What about other parts of of the the organization that maybe aren't running React or maybe can't or or won't or there's legacy systems or there's whatever or is there just like sort of like a, a organizational wide initiative where it's like yep like th this is the implementation specific stuff we're going on this is how we write things now and like get on board or or, or, or whatever. Yeah. In my, cause in my own work, what ends up happening is I see these clients and they sort of like, they commit to these things that in order to get that sort of standard button style or card style or, or certain behaviors or whatever, you have to subscribe to a specific library, whether that's react or angular or, you know, jQuery or like, however they, they wrote it. But like, especially as, yeah, as, as, as organizations get bigger and bigger and there's a bunch of different products, there's a bunch of different technologies in use, suddenly you're in this position where it's like, in order to get that button style, I have to subscribe to this iceberg of like tech dependencies and stuff like that, that have no real bearing on like rendering that button, like, you know, styling that button. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so can you speak to that? Like, I'd love to hear like sort of how, you're all thinking about, you know, as you, it sounds like, are doing very specific work using very specific technologies. You're also talking about how this is starting to get ported to different products and stuff like that, which is awesome. So, so culturally and like organizationally, like how are you all talking about that and planning for that? Yeah, there's there's a ton to impact there. I mean, you could probably do a full uh, podcast just um, trying to dive in all the pieces there. Um, a, a little bit of history at Microsoft is that uh, there's been a couple of attempts to try and do this, to unify um, uh, unify the kind of that, unify the tech stack, unify the, the, the pieces that we're building so we're not in these silos all over the place. Um, and there've been a few attempts with some uh, kind of like homebrewed uh, applications and whatnot. Um, and because right now it's a mix of, you know, some knockout over here and, um, some Angular over here and uh, whatnot. And 
really we, we found ourselves within the last year or two of everyone is starting to want to move over to React. So, I mean, for us, as far as organizationally, for, for us, it's it's worked out really well because there's been so much movement towards React. There's so many different organizations that have independently gone, hey, this would work really well for what we're doing and re re we really want to get on board. And then as soon as they find out that, oh, hey, there's also this library of controls that we can use, that they, they want to do it even more. Um, and kind of going back to the original question of, you know, why would you do it versus why why tie into this tech stack and, and get dependent upon the tech stack? Uh, it really comes down to, again, this, this kind of like design systems 2.0, that it, a design system is is starting to be way more than just how a button looks. Because um, we, we kind of started in this path. Fabric started as just a set of, of um, CSS and HTML um, that showed how a button was supposed to look um, mm -hmm. and, or like how a dropdown was supposed to look. Um, mm -hmm. But then when we got feedback towards uh, like, hey, well, what happens when you click on it? I need, I need to see what happens when you click on the dropdown and to see the dropdown. Like we need to, like part of our, part of the visual language is like how things open and close and, 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 and whatnot. So we needed to see that. And, and so sure. we went about writing some JavaScript to show how that worked and writing some more JavaScript to show how that worked. And now oh, here's a people picker where you, you type names in and, you know, it shows a list of people like, all right, write some JavaScript to show how that worked. And we're just, we're just, you know, writing prototype JavaScript to demonstrate how all these things work. Yep. Um, and we write more and more and more and more. And then we're like, <laughs> Oh, this is getting kind of big. Let's, let's start writing some helpers and some extra things. And like we eventually start writing our own JavaScript framework for, to make this whole thing work. Um, and, and some, some bad things came out of that for one, because what the JavaScript we wrote was really just for presentation. Like we really only intended it to like show how these components work, but then people wanted to just take our markup in our JavaScript and now put that in their application. And so now we're like, now they're asking us to support that. We're like, well, that was really just <laughs> prototyping. Uh, so sure. it, it's one of those, like, are you going to show uh, the interactions of a component inside of your style guide? And if you are, there's, there's going to be quite a bit of JavaScript that's required to do that. So as soon as mm -hmm. you start going down that path, you're like, well, are we going to be writing this whole framework ourselves? Or should we maybe choose a framework and, and have that part of our design system? Um, and I know that you don't have to go that path. Uh, if you look at a uh, lightning design system, um, they very specifically, when you go to their page and you look at components, there's no interactivity to it. The, you know, if you see like um, a, a set of tabs, it's like, hey, that's nice. There's tabs and markup. You click right. on the tabs, nothing happens. You know, you click on the dropdown, nothing happens. Because right. what, the, what they are specifically trying to do is say, this is how it looks. They might have a couple of like, you know, here's five different uh, panels of it. Uh, like, you know, here's the closed state, here's the open state, here's the selected state, so on and so forth to demonstrate each of those. But they're not writing the interactivity for someone to go in there and play with it. Um, and that's a very intentional decision. And I've even brought it up a couple of times internally of like, hey, should we do this? Like take our styles and our markup out and, and give like a pure presentation of it. Um, and it really comes down to, uh, you know, what's the value of it for our team? Um, for us, there's so much work that's gone into making that button do what the button does inside React um, that 
we really would rather just people use that React component. Um, and for us to be have to maintain both of those and support, you know, a, a team trying to use Angular to do the same thing. Um, yep. It really comes down to, you know, we're a product team and our product uses React. And, you know, for us to fund something that's not like directly going into our product um, is just, it's not going to happen because we're a product team and that's what we do. So right. um, there, there's some external forces that kind of made that happen, but it's, it's definitely, it takes some really, some, some real intention to, to keep those two things separated. Um, yeah. And yeah. There, there, there's certainly that question of, well, why keep it separated? Like, do you, like in, as an organization, do we need to support all of these multiple, you know, languages, um, because so much of the work that we're doing is really, I mean, it's, it's the animations, how things open and close, how you interact, how you tab through things, how arrow keys work inside of a sure. list. Like sure. there is so much stuff there that is part of our experience that people just get for free when you use, when you use the React component that you'd have to completely rebuild in any other language or framework. So right. Uh, right. when you start looking at a design system as more than just how something looks, but how also something works, um, then you need to have an opinion about how it's written. Um, and sure, you can do it in just pure JavaScript, um, but that's or that's or, work. or yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think that your your point about like we're on a specific product team doing specific work for a specific product, I think is is important to underscore. I think that like sort of as a design system team, uh, sort of again in in my own work sort of working with these sort of overarching teams they're they're teams that are the ones that are sort of helping shepherd and govern and 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 sort of make these decisions about like cool well like we actually have a couple products that are using angular we have a couple products that are using react we have we recognize that their you know views coming down the pipes or whatever mm -hmm. next or then like whatever is going on next year or two years or five years from now. But at the end of the day, like the users don't care about any of that, right? They they want things to to look and to your point behave the same. So so that does require a lot of uh, intention to sort of set that up to to simultaneously like scale, but also be able to help specific teams do specific work faster. So, exactly. so I just, I think, I think that that's, it's an interesting, uh, I, I, it's an interesting conundrum. And I think it, it really ends up being more of like a cultural communication thing than it is any sort of like specific, uh, tech. Uh, yeah. And it, there's it also no comes sort down of like to, solve for that. Yeah. It comes down to the kind of the team, uh, the team structure, um, and really yeah. the, the, the charter. I mean, what, what is the what is the business use case for the work that you're doing? And if you know if the business um, you know says, hey, we want a design system that is going to you know meet the needs of Angular and React and Knockout and you know X Y Z, you're like, all right, what's the staffing requirement to do that? Great, let's get the staff to do it now. You know what's what's it going to take to make all that work? And let's let's make sure that each product align about this behavior and those types of things. So. There's there's a ton of work that goes into that, and the question just comes down to: Is that the business charter? Is that you know we're willing to put money into making this happen? 
Um, and for us, you know, we're, we're using React. So that is the direction that we're going with it. And, you know, if the charter changes in the future and like, hey, we want to support multiple, we're like, all right, we need more staffing <laughs> because it really comes down to it. At this point, it's it's a very small team. It's really just like two or three of us that are that are really focused on it primarily. And then past that, it's it's very much a, a federated project where, mm-hmm. you know, we've got, uh, you know, all these different um all these other different products are using the, that are using Fabric that are contributing, um, you know, contributing pull requests and bug fixes and lots of issues, uh, you know, that are using the product and able to contribute back to it. So it's a it has been a great exercise. And how do you how do you create a design system within a federated approach where you don't have this large core team? Um, to, to to push it, and you you kind of have to be a, a little bit more of a, a cheerleader and a um, maybe a, a sheep wrangler or something to, to try <laughs> to figure out like how, how can we set things up so that anyone can contribute and be successful and add to the system, um, and, and you know in whatever small spare time they might have in, inside of their product. So uh, yeah, it's it's been a, an incredible experience to say the least. So something I'm really keen to talk to you about is uh, about visual regression testing. Um, so I've heard that you, you do it and I'm keen to find out kind of how you go about doing it, what you've learned, what your kind of recommendations are for, um, whether people do it in their own projects. Sure. Um, we, we're actually, we're close to doing it. <laughs> um, we, we, we have I think everyone's close to doing it. We're close to. We have a couple of hurdles. Um, yeah. I, one of my one of the things I came on nine months ago, and I, I, I saw we didn't have any visual regression testing. I, I had a big whiteboard behind me, and I was like listing out the things I want to get done. And you know, big one right at the top was visual regression testing, mm-hmm. um, because you know a lot of it is we have, especially in a federated system, um, you want to make sure that when someone checks some code in and refactors some CSS or CSS and JavaScript or whatever the case is, <laughs> that they can, your component continues to look the same uh, regardless of those changes. Um, and we didn't have that at all. So um, we built, went about writing it. Um, and um, the, the, the challenge, I'll, I'll just kind of jump to this, that visual regression testing is, is not as mature um, and complete as I really want it to be. Um, and I'm afraid it's losing a little bit of, of steam, and I really hope that the steam picks up again. Mm-hmm. Um, just because there's a lot of technical hurdles to get over, over um, and there's a couple of kind of um, open source environmental issues that, that are, are hampering it as well. So there's, there's kind of there's two approaches for visual regression testing. One is with real browsers, and one is with headless fake browsers. Um, and the way that you typically do it, the way that, that Really, majority of visual regression testing suites are built right now are using uh, using Phantom JS and uh, and often using Casper, which is um, a set of uh, uh, JavaScript bindings to basically control the headless browser. Um, and there's a lot of great tools written in it. I've used it a bunch. We used it at Red Hat uh, really successfully, um, and that's actually what we uh, what we've built uh, within Fabric right now that just hasn't started uh, hasn't gone live yet. Um, one of the challenges is um, it's open source software and it's had a little bit of a rocky life. Um, mm. And then um, uh, like uh, Casper JS, it looks like it was it was dead on the vine at one point and then it got mm. resurrected. The ghost came back up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah know, In a horrible. friendly way. In a friendly way. Thank you. Um, so that was great. We're like, yay, Casper is on board again. And and, and PhantomJS is a, a 2.0 and it's a little bit more modern. So we're doing good. <clears throat> and then Headless Chrome came out um, uh, 
four or five weeks, six, a couple months ago. Um, and like within a day or I think it was seriously within like the same day it came out, um, one of the, the, the head maintainers of Phantom JS said, all right, you know, uh, that's it. I'm calling, you know, I, we, None. whatever, are, are calling it quits. Like uh, with, with, with the headless scrum coming out, that pretty much makes what the work we're doing defunct. Um, and we really think you should go use that instead. Mm. <laughs> we're like, yeah. ah, great. But, <laughs> but, but so, so the concept though, like I, I guess like sort yes. of like implementation aside, like I guess implementation could, could you speak a little bit to like the, the, you know, it's like the philosophy of what this does and what that means. Like if you're building a design system and you're building components within mm-hmm. that design system, like what's, what's, why, why should people who are, who are building design systems like be thinking about this like sure. as they're as they're building a card component <laughs> yeah i, was, I painted a really a horrible picture to, to start <laughs> you're like, so, you're uh, like by the way uh, it's all dead yeah, nothing yeah nice. it's all dead no because the, yeah. the other approach i mean i think headless chrome <laughs> is going to make a huge impact um within mm. a year or so once people start writing for it and it gets mature mm-hmm. enough because um, once you can do that, then you've got like solid um, currents, modern browser to do all your, your visual regression testing, at least for headless. The other approach is also you can do it using uh, Selenium and WebDriver, um, which is uh, the same thing that Browser Stack uses, the same thing that Sauce Labs uses. Um, and it, that's a great tool because you basically you're telling this, this uh, you're basically remote controlling a browser and getting screenshots in it. Um, and that's a, it's a great tool. Um, I've used it personally a couple of times. It's just mostly a workflow question because it requires getting Java installed in turn, uh, at your dev machine, <laughs> which can sometimes be a little bad. Um, so it's for us, it was mostly just trying to get over that technical hurdle of workflow, but it, it can be done. So to, to back up real quick, what visual regression testing does is uh, in unit testing, um, what you do is you have a function that adds two numbers together um, and you want to make sure that function always adds those adds two numbers together properly. So in unit testing, you say my, you know, adding two number function, when I pass in two and three, it should always equal five. And if for mm-hmm. some reason that function returns seven or three or banana, then something's wrong and my unit test fails. So that's unit testing uh, with functions. Uh, it's basically the same idea with visual regression testing, but instead of a function returning a like numerical value or you know, whatever that return is, the function is going and taking a screenshot, like an actual PNG screenshot of your component, and then comparing it instead of to, you know, uh, my, my result should equal four, it, should, it is my result should equal the last picture I took. So, you know, if you have a button that's blue with a white border and every time you take a picture of it, it should be blue with a white border. If one day you take a picture of it and it's green with a purple border, when you compare it to the old one, it should go, hey, these two images are different. And literally you're, you're going through and uh, comparing pixels like pixel zero, zero in the top left. You know, what's the value of it? OK, let's compare the two. Uh, it's literally going through and just and looking at all the pixels and seeing if they compare. Um, and it's it's a great tool to use because 
if a, if a padding changes uh, accidentally because you thought you did something right but you actually screwed something up, um, you know the the two images are going to be different and go, hey, there's a problem here. Um, right. And when you have a large system with lots of variations, say you've got a button that's got like five different variants and several different states and hover states and click states and split buttons with what happens when you click and then focus and you're like, ah, so many different variations. <laughs> um, it, literally having to go in and every time you make a tweak to the button and like go through every single state, like, okay, what was the focus state on this again? And like having to go back to red lines and check. It's, it's basically a, a manual red line checker because your red lines are now all of these baseline images that you captured and you're able to just check, say, you know, there's a hundred of them, especially with buttons. You could have a hundred of these things. And, and the, quickly the go problem, through. The problem that you were mentioning before around browsers is if you've got a team of people and they're all kind of running these reference checks and, uh, yeah. and you know, checking that the that the screenshots match up, um, the tool that does it, it, it will often find differences between the browsers that they're using. Um, that's that's exactly and, yeah, one of the or what system they're using and so there's mm -hmm. there's this whole kind of debate around do you check in the do reference screenshots into your repo um i personally don't i ask everyone to take their own reference screenshots and sort of compare them against a, a production branch yeah you um, can wait why is that controversial sorry <laughs> so well, if you have a mac versus a pc like fonts render different or if different fonts mm. are installed Oh, or or they don't, okay. or if you're using something like an older headless browser, like it doesn't, mm -hmm. it might not have web fonts. Yeah. Like it might oh, not support it. So yeah, different versions of, of, of browsers. The the challenge there is to get a consistent so test environment. Um, right. Which so is either a headless browser like PhantomJS, that's why that's so popular, is that, it, that when you NPM install, it literally installs this browser for you. So that mm. you can lock in what version of browser people are using. Um, the other approach to this is that all of the testing happens in your uh, in your build process. So in Travis CI or your Jenkins instance or something like that. That's another so that, controversial point, whether you get yes. builds to fail and like... Oh, definitely fail. I, yeah, well, I, I don't include it in build processes because um, yeah. well, it takes a long time if you've got a lot of components. Um, yep. But also it's often I want them to fail. You know, it's mm -hmm. kind of... I want it to come up with the and show me what the changes are, but I I don't necessarily want it to fail um, because it right, might. That's, that's it also might negative. Mm. Yeah, that's that sounds negative. It's like if a test fails because something's different. Like I, I guess like the way I see it as someone who's <laughs> like hypothetically, like if I were to build this into my workflow, I'd want to see what's changing and to make sure that stuff is kosher. Not necessarily mm. like oh it's different like. Yeah, I adjusted the cards padding, and now like all these screenshots are are throwing. I, I guess you don't call them errors, but like if if you say it fails, then it's like, well, yeah, of course it's different. I just made a change. <laughs> uh, I don't. That's all really interesting. I like. I think it's sort of where to put that, where to build it into your workflow and stuff. Like that sounds like it making that a bottleneck seems like pretty extreme, I guess. Well, the, the idea there is if you are checking baselines into the Git repo, um, the reason that you have something fail is because the baselines don't match what the new styles are. So say okay. you're asked to increase the padding on a button. Of course, that test is going to fail. But then the process after that should be, it's just like if you, if you change a function, um, 
like a, you know, a JavaScript computational function. Like, you know, now my, my adding function does return banana. So you need to actually go and update your test to say like, I'm expecting banana to return. So I, when I make that change to the function, I need to also need to update my test. Okay. So the idea right. there is that if, if you okay. change the button and now the button fails, you need to include the new baseline along with your yeah. pull request. Because then the next person has the new baseline and your new, your new CSS so that it doesn't fail for them. Um, so yeah, if you are going to be including baselines in the Git repo, um, that means that anytime you add padding to a button, you also need to, in your pull request, which is this actually kind of a neat thing, is, hey, I've got a pull request that's adding padding to a button. You can see the CSS Oh, yeah, right and including there. the screenshots. Is, yes, is really so your, your pull request will actually include that screenshot as well. So you're like, that's what the new baseline looks like. And when that code gets merged in, it gets the new CSS, it gets the new baseline. And the next person that will run the tests, if they didn't make any changes, should run and pass. Um, and of course, that's you have to get past some of the challenges of you know, differences from one person's machine to a next. And that's it's kind of where we've ran, the problem we've ran into now is even from, even Phantom JS from one browser to a next, we're having for some reason errors. Um, and so the, the one, one approach to that, the solution is that all of the testing and all the baseline creation gets done in one place. Yeah. So we're trying to get Travis to do that. Um, and the yeah, only we problem do that is with Travis- production. Yeah, and the only problem is Travis doesn't have file storage, um, so you literally have to, in your build step, push those files somewhere else, uh, and that's basically where we're at right now. It's just getting mm. that set up for it to push the files somewhere else that we can get to them, so we can pull them pull them down. Um, so if there is an error, you know, and there's a, a, a new file gets, uh, you know, you've got more padding on your button, you can go get that baseline and update it. Um, this wasn't a problem when we were doing Jenkins previously because Jenkins was its own, like, you know, we had an instance of it with its own file storage, so we could just pull the file directly from that. Um, wow. Anyway, maybe we should uh, <laughs> ask you about it in a couple of years' time. See how yeah, yeah, there we go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm yeah. really hoping headless Chrome uh, is is a the solution there once once yeah, the I didn't know about get that. mature enough. That sounds good. Um, yeah, that's yeah, really it, cool. It, it's gonna it should hopefully do exactly what Phantom JS does, which Phantom JS was basically just a WebKit browser implemented in JavaScript. Um, so now that we're moving to you know to having a, a Chrome version of that, um, hopefully that'll fill that gap and we'll find some some even better tooling. Um, it's it just might take a little bit of time. Uh, the other approach is obviously going a Selenium route. You seem to make sure your build step um, as long as the build step will build the artifacts. Um, eh, I've got talks on it. It takes 45 minutes to explain. <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> you get a lot to it. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Um, but when yeah, it's set well, up, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly. I think I think that we could we could probably talk about this all day. I also think that for something called visual regression testing, I should. It sounds like that's a good topic for a, a talk where you could actually see slides <laughs> and examples. Yes, exactly. We're like talking about this in the abstract. <laughs> Imagine the color purple. Yes. Um, but anyways, uh, just sort of looking at the clock here, uh, as much as I'd love to keep geeking out here, uh, uh, we got to wrap up, but, but seriously, thank you so much for your time. It sounds like you're, you're just like neck deep and in, I like this whole notion of design systems 2.0, mm -hmm. these sort of like next level design systems, like going beyond just like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We understand consistency is important. And like, how does that translate uh, out? So I'm really looking forward to 
seeing uh, yeah where you and the rest of the the your team at Microsoft take this stuff and and uh, yeah keep uh, you're you're pretty active in the community so so keep that up keep sharing what you can and definitely will yeah awesome well well thanks so much for being on the on the show and we appreciate the time thanks hey thank you guys and if I have one last plug I can possibly give is uh, I will be at at uh, CSS DevConf this year. Uh, which is going to be in New Orleans again uh, in October. Certainly check that out. Uh, but I'll be giving a talk there specifically on um, React in design systems. Um, and then we'll also be giving a workshop on design systems. So if you're curious about how to build a design system out, I don't think I'm going to dive fully into React. It's going to be a lot more of kind of the core essentials. Uh, but how to take a design, break it down into smaller pieces, um, how to use the tools for documentation, for visual aggression testing, and all those types of things. Um, check that out, um, CSS DevConf, and uh, I think there's still some spots open in, in that uh, workshop as well. Nice. Awesome. Excellent. Well, uh, yeah, so with that, uh, check that out, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Hey, Bye. thanks so much for having me on. Bye. Bye.